Good morning, church. Our passage this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So turn there with me if you would, and let's open our time together in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for its truth, and thank you for leaving it to us as a record of your redemption and of how we can best know you. And so we thank you um, for all of that this morning. We are grateful for the sweetness of our trust in you, of the freedom and the joy that we have that so much of the world um, doesn't know and doesn't possess. And so we're grateful um, for that. And so, Lord, as we turn to your word today, I pray that you would, um, that your spirit would speak to us through it. I pray that you would help us to understand it correctly um, and to walk through this in a faithful manner and that you would speak to us through it. We do trust you to do that and we are dependent upon your word to teach us and to guide us how to live. And so we pray for your help in those, in those ways. Thank you for who you are. We're grateful to know you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, the death of George Washington has always intrigued me. For those of you who know your history, you know that he died um, on December 14th, 1799, but his illness began on December 12th, 1799. He had spent all day um, out in the field supervising the work that was being done at that time. And, and it was a day much like yesterday, uh, a rainy, snowy, just miserable day to be outside. And so after spending all day out in the fields and soaked to the bone, that night he complained of having a sore throat and difficulty in speaking. In fact, his habit was to read the newspaper at night to the the family that was gathered there, and he was unable to actually read the paper that night. He had to ask his personal secretary to finish the reading of the paper because he was unable to, to complete that. But the next day, he was up in Adam. He was on his horse again, and this time he was out in the fields marking timber that was to be cut down as he prepared to log a field. But that night, he knew that something was wrong, and that was when they called for the physicians. And, and in total, four physicians were called to care for George Washington as they tried to treat these symptoms. And eventually, um, he died um, a day later on December 14th. But as we think about that case, the doctors were united, and they all agreed on what the problem was. They diagnosed it as Quincy, um, a swelling of the tonsils, uh, an infection of the tonsils that led to an abscess that made it difficult to swallow or to breathe, which were the symptoms that, that George Washington was complaining of. And since then, um, current doctors have examined that, and, and they're not sure that it's necessarily Quincy, but it may have been an infection in his voice box, actually. <clears throat> I don't have an infection in mine, I promise. <laughs> Maybe a short sermon if that's the case. Um, but either way, it's, it's an infection in that area that led to swelling that caused difficulty in breathing or swallowing. And so while, the, while we can agree with the diagnosis or there was unity about the diagnosis, it was the doctor's treatment that we understand as being mistaken or wrong um, during this time. And we can't fault them for it because those doctors didn't have the knowledge of, of infections and the knowledge of antibiotics that, that we do during this time. And so their treatment for George Washington was to bleed him. He was bled four different times to try and rid his body of that infection. And, and while that may not have contributed to his demise, while the infection was certainly the root cause, it also didn't contribute anything to his healing. It didn't do anything to deal with the root of the issue, the issue which was the infection that was in his throat. 
And so as I think about this story and, and the reality of, of the illness that he had and the, the inability of the doctors to effectively treat that, I think that's a wonderful picture of how much of the world functions in relationship to sin. Because our world is very competent at identifying the problems and the issues that result from sin, aren't they? If you watch secular movies or you listen to secular music, they're very competent at identifying the suffering and the pain that humanity deals with. That's something they're very adept at. But the problem is they are unable to recommend a solution. They are unable to recommend an actual solution to the pain that they experience. And the reason for that is because at the core of all of that pain and suffering is sin. Sin is the root of the pain and the suffering that we experience in this life. And so the only comfort that can be found in this life is if you deal with sin. And the secular world is not competent. They're not equipped to deal with sin outside of a knowledge of the Lord and an understanding of the gospel. And so as we look at our passage this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul deals with this issue of comfort. He deals with the affliction that we all carry as just part of this human race, the affliction that is ours to live in this world. And then he shows us the solution to that affliction, and that solution is found only in God. And so his focus in this first chapter is the sufficiency of God, that God is sufficient for the ministry that he's called Paul to. He is sufficient for the comfort that Paul needs in the midst of, of affliction. And then the culmination of that is that God is sufficient for all of life. And so our theme as we walk through this passage is to see the dependence that believers have on God. We are created to be dependent beings in a necessary relationship with our God. And 1 Corinthians 1 shows us the dependence that all believers have on God and the sufficiency that our God has to meet our every need. So, um, now before we jump into 2 Corinthians 1, it's important that we do some background and just an overview of 2 Corinthians before we get into this study. So, as many of you know, Paul had a long and rather tumultuous relationship with the church at Corinth. Um, he visited Corinth first in about 50 AD, and that's when he established the church. Now, Corinth, as a city, um, resides in Greece. It is a Greek city. But at this point, as Paul is writing to Corinth, it is an entirely Roman city. The Greek city had been wiped out, had been leveled, it had been eradicated. And when Rome took over Greece, they moved back into Corinth and they rebuilt an entirely Roman city in the ruins of that Greek city. Now, although it was a Roman city, it had many of the same marks of that Greek city. It was very wealthy. It had lots of affluence. It was a cosmopolitan place. They, they even hosted their own version of the Olympic Games called the Ismithian Games. And so it was a very wealthy, affluent, cultural center for that area. And so as Paul comes into Corinth and he establishes a church there, naturally there's conflict as this worldly people and pagan people engage with what it means to be a faithful follower of Christ in this time. So after Paul established the church in Corinth around 50 AD, he then traveled to Ephesus. And he stayed in Ephesus for about three years, establishing the church there. And while he was in Ephesus, he got a series of letters 
or visiting delegations from the church in Corinth, asking him questions, questions about how to do ministry as a church. How does this church engage with the culture? And so as Paul thought about those issues, he responded to them in a letter, and that letter is 1 Corinthians, the canonical book of 1 Corinthians. So he responds to those questions and those issues that the church is having, and, and he sends the letter to Corinth in the hands of Timothy, his trusted servant. And so Timothy goes and he delivers the letter to Corinth, but when he returns, he bears some very disturbing news to Paul. News that is so disturbing that Paul decides to make an emergency trip to Corinth to address the issues that this church is facing. Now, Paul alludes to that visit, not in Acts, but he alludes to it in 2 Corinthians, but he does so very generally. And so we don't know exactly what the issues were that caused him to leave Ephesus and make this emergency trip to Corinth. But whatever it was, we know that it had to be very serious. Now, we're going to get to to what we think it is based on the content of 2 Corinthians, but we don't know exactly what he was addressing. Was it heretical teaching? Was it a question of his authority? We're not 100% sure. So he visits Corinth and he addresses this issue. And after he addresses that issue, he returns back to Ephesus. Now, his intention, once he gets back to Ephesus, is to visit Corinth again. I mean, could you imagine the miles this guy was putting on boats at that time? I mean, I bet he wished he had a frequent flyer credit card, right? He could have had lots of rewards. Tough crowd this morning. Jeez. Okay. Well, that's as good as you get. I'm sorry. That's... So he goes back to Ephesus, and his intention is to go back to Corinth to help strengthen the church there. However, um, in Acts 20, we have an account of Demetrius the silversmith leading a revolt against the church in Ephesus. And because of the deterioration of the situation there, Paul had to flee Ephesus. And he went, rather than to Corinth, he went up to Macedonia, probably residing in Philippi during that time. Now, he was planning to go to Corinth. And so instead of going to Corinth, he sends another letter, and this letter goes with Titus. Now, you may think that that letter is 2 Corinthians, but you would be wrong. That's actually 2 Corinthians, but that's not canonical 2 Corinthians. The 2 Corinthians that we have is 3 Corinthians, okay? Now, I know I'm not very good at math, but you have to follow with me on these numbers as we go through. So that letter that he sends from Ephesus to Corinth 2 Corinthians, um, he refers to as his severe letter. And so that letter was really calling the church to account and confronting them with the sin that they were allowing to exist in their midst. And so Titus took that letter to the church at Corinth. Meanwhile, Paul flees Ephesus and he goes up to Macedonia. While he's in Macedonia, Titus returns to him. And Titus brings the news that Paul was hoping for. There had been a total repentance and a reversal of the church in Corinth. They, they, rather than rejecting the apostle, they were seeking to embrace him. They had repented of their sin, and they wanted restoration in their relationship with Paul. And so the fact that there was this wonderful repentance on the part of the church at Corinth prompts Paul to write our canonical book of 2 Corinthians, which is actually 3 Corinthians. Okay? Everyone entirely confused? Good. I did my job. Great. All right. All right. 
But it's important to know that context as we approach 2 Corinthians, because 2 Corinthians is seeking to create this restoration between the church at Corinth and Paul, the apostle. Now, um, what we suspect was going on in Corinth, we don't know for sure, but based on the theme of 2 Corinthians, what we suspect was going on in Corinth was that there was another person rising up and claiming to be an apostle, someone who was coming and preaching a different gospel, claiming to have the authority and the power of an apostle. And the church was quickly turning to him and listening to this individual and questioning the apostolic authority of Paul. And so it is that issue, the apostolic authority of Paul, that is the feature of 2 Corinthians. Paul is seeking to prove the validity of his claim to being apostle, to the authority that he has as an apostle of the Lord, and that that authority doesn't show itself in in uh, worldly success or in num- numerical growth or in things like that, but it shows itself in faithfulness to the Word of God. And so that becomes a wonderful question for us to examine as well as we go through this book. What are the marks of a Spirit-led, Spirit-filled ministry? How do we evaluate or examine whether a ministry is, is given from the power of the Lord? Do we look for the worldly markers of success, like like more wealth and numerical growth and things like that, or do we focus on the things that matter to God, things like faithfulness to His Word, service to others, and things of that nature? And so those are the things we'll be tracking through this letter as we engage in our study. So with all of that as background, let's pick up in 2 Corinthians, or should I say 3 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 2 together. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and our brother Timothy, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are throughout Acacia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this sounds like a vanilla introduction, and it is. In fact, it's even more vanilla than usual for Paul. Generally, in Paul's greeting, in in what he writes to a church, he includes that he's an apostle, but he generally has another term to describe his ministry. His favorite term is a bondservant, that I am a bondservant of Christ. And so often, he will include another descriptor of his life in that title of apostle. But he doesn't do that here. Instead, he merely mentions the fact that he is an apostle. And I think that draws our attention to the fact that this is the crucial matter that he is seeking to address with the church at Corinth. The validity of his claim to be an apostle is what is in question. And so he establishes from the outset that he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what we are prone to forget is that in the first century, there were a number of people claiming to be apostles. And so seeking to determine who a legitimate apostle was was truly an important question for the church to wrestle with. And so Paul is seeking to establish his case for why he is an authentic and valid apostle. And so if he were trying to build his case for the validity of his ministry, you think he would appeal to the fact that he saw the risen Lord in Jesus Christ, that he had an appearance with his Savior. But that's not what he goes to. It might be the fact that he's written numerous letters that have strengthened the church but that's not what he appeals to. It it might be that he's traveled all over the known world and established churches all across there, but that's not what he appeals to. He could appeal to all of the converts that he has saved, but that's not what he appeals to. 
What does he say is the foundation for his claim to be an apostle? He is an apostle by the will of God. It is God's presence in his life that validates his ministry. Now, this is the exact opposite of what the Corinthian church would have appreciated or what they would have been looking for. As, as I said, it's a very cosmopolitan, worldly place, and so they would have valued the markers of worldly success that other people would have brought into their ministry. They would have valued things like wealth and influence and, and skill and talents and abilities. Those were the things they were looking for. And Paul rejects all of that. And he says, the only thing that matters is that God has called me to be an apostle, and it is his presence in my life and my ministry that makes me effective. That's a wonderful truth. And so as we think about that, what does that mean for our church? What does that mean for us as we think about ministry and what this looks like? Well, it reminds me of some things we talked about in Exodus, because if you remember, Moses had this same question when God called him to go and lead the people of Israel out. He said, God, how can I go? I I have poor speech. I'm not powerful or influential. What if the people don't listen to me? You remember that? And what did God say? It's not about you, Moses. I don't care about your talents. I don't care about your abilities. I just want you to speak my words. And if you speak my words, you will be effective. The success and the efficacy of your ministry is not dependent on your talents and your abilities. It is dependent upon your faithfulness to the Word of God. And that's exactly what Paul is relying on here. How do we demonstrate this kind of dependence upon the Lord for our ministry and our mission? It is by an unquestioning allegiance to the Word of God. The Word of God does not need dressed up. We simply need to read it and to trust it. And that is how we establish our obedience and faithfulness to the Lord. And and it's not just an exodus, right? We can trace this all through the Old Testament. Because what does Moses tell the people in Deuteronomy? Your blessing depends on how closely you follow the Word of God. It's not on the skills and the abilities that you have, but if you want to be a successful nation, you must obey my words. What does God tell Joshua? Do not depart from the word of the law that I am giving you today, so that you will dwell for years in the land that I am giving you. So this theme of unquestioning allegiance to God's word as the guarantee of success for a ministry is something that we see all throughout the Bible. And so we don't measure the success of our ministry based on numbers. We don't measure it based on wealth. We don't measure it based on fancy buildings. We measure it based on our faithfulness to the Word of God. That is the measure of the success of our ministry, just as it was for Paul. Now, this was a difficult pill for the church at Corinth to swallow, and we're going to see Paul uh, work this out all the way through the book. It's an important theme that we'll see. So, after this introduction, giving his title and then welcoming the church, he moves into a benediction, and this benediction is in verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. 
But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same suffering which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are partners in our suffering, so also you are in our comfort. Now, this is called a benediction because of the first phrase that Paul uses, blessed be. This is meant to be a praise to our God, recognizing something in God's character that we praise, that we recognize as a good and beautiful thing. And so what is that character quality that Paul is recognizing? It is the fact, as he said, that we serve a God who is the God of all comfort. But before that, notice the title that he uses for God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this benediction form is taken from the Old Testament. If you look through the Old Testament, you'll see forms of this kind of a benediction all throughout it. But the interesting thing is that generally, in those Old Testament benedictions, the name for God is the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so notice what Paul replaces for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's now the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's a very intentional change on Paul's part, because by calling on the patriarchs, the point that the Old Testament writers were making was to remind them that God was faithful to keep the promises that He had made to His people. The promises that He had made to Abraham, He was going to keep for the generations to come. And Jesus' coming was God's fulfillment of those generations. He now functions as proof that God kept his word to those patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And so now, the great picture of God's promise to his people is not Abraham, it's not Isaac and Jacob, but it is Jesus. Jesus is that picture of God's willingness to keep his promise to his people and his faithfulness to them. And so, Paul is celebrating the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes into two names for God. Notice what they are. The Father of mercy and the God of all comfort. Now, the, the closeness and proximity of those two titles to the fact that God is also the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ shows that these two titles stem from Jesus. They flow from our union with Him. And we're going to see that spelled out even more clearly in verse 5. But I want us to focus on the title, The God of All Comfort. Now, I just want you to think about that title for a second. That's a really strong claim that Paul is making. Do you understand what he's saying with that title? The God of All Comfort. That means that any sense of pleasure, encouragement, joy, or happiness that you experience in this life comes from God. And by, by converse, without God, you cannot experience any comfort in this life. Now, are you prepared to say that this morning? Can we, can we really stand on that claim? Is that really true? That in God is all comfort. It's a, it's a radical claim. It's a radical claim. But it's absolutely true. 
Because if you think about it this way, every form of suffering, affliction, and pain that we deal with in this life has its root in what? Its root is in sin. The brokenness of sin causes the suffering, the pain, and the affliction that we experience in this life. And so the only way we can experience comfort in the midst of that pain and affliction and suffering is if God deals with sin. And so it is because God deals with sin that all comfort resides in Him. Now, this word for comfort, which is repeated many times throughout this verse, if, if you try to read it out loud, it's a tongue twister. It really is. Comfort goes on so many times there. But, but this word for comfort means to help, that God can help His people, that He is an encouragement to the brokenhearted, that he, he lifts up and He helps those who are depressed. He cares for those who are sick. But our God is a God who helps His people. What an amazing picture of who our Lord is. And there's no greater picture of that than in the cross, right? A God who comes, who takes on human flesh, who deals with all of the, the suffering and the pain and the junk of being human so that He can accomplish salvation for His people. That is a God who helps. That is a God who provides comfort. But as we think about this claim, the God of all comfort, I want you to think about the culture that Corinth was in. And as I described it, a wealthy, an affluent culture, a, a cosmopolitan place, we have to recognize that they turned to anything but God for their comfort. They were prone to look to social status and success in the world's eyes as evidence of, of their comfort or as a way to comfort them. They were prone to, to look to pleasure, to just entertain themselves as a way to find comfort. But we exist in the exact same kind of culture as well, don't we? We are prone to look everywhere other than God for help. We are prone to look to family and to friends to provide comfort when we're going through a season of affliction. And, and of course, God provides those relationships as we're going to look um, further on in the chapter. But ultimately, God is the one who provides that comfort. We are prone to try to distract ourselves with, with meaningless entertainment and, and mindless activity when we're going through trial or affliction, to escape the difficulty of this life into a virtual life. We're prone to look to pleasure to distract us during those times, and that takes the form of addiction, whether that's an addiction to food or, or to drugs or to lust, something of that nature, to distract us from the pain and the suffering of this life. Those are the things we look to to comfort ourselves when we walk through trial and hardship. But what does this passage say? The only place to find comfort is in God. God is the God of all comfort. And so I want us to think about this in, in a couple ways this morning. First is to examine our own lives, to look for where we turn for comfort that is outside of Christ, that often reveals an idol in our life. And so that's an important discipline for us to have. But the other thing I want us just to pause and to think about for a moment is to remember many of us are, are far from our lost condition. And so we're prone to forget what it's like to be lost. But I just want you to pause for a moment and to think about the lost person with this truth before us. 
Do you recognize what this passage is saying? For a person who doesn't know Jesus, a person who is lost, they are destined to never experience or feel comfort for the afflictions and the suffering that this life gives them. Isn't that terrible? What a terrible experience to be that far from God's care and ability to never have access to the comfort that He provides through the gospel. And so as we think about our own lives and how we ought to live, we should be motivated to share the gospel with the lost because of truths like this. When we see a lost and a hurting world longing for comfort and looking for satisfaction, we have the answer for them, and it is the gospel. It is the truth of what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. And so, this should be the motivation for our evangelism to provide the answer to the question that they are all seeking. The comfort that you need is found in Christ. But the other side of that to think about is comfort will never be found through sin. And so, at times, we are prone to leave people in their sin out of trying to be nice or trying to be kind to them, right? To excuse their misbehavior. And that's never the truth. If God and if Christ is the source of our comfort, then comfort will never be found in sin. And in fact, the way you provide comfort to a person is by calling out that sin and pushing them closer to their relationship with Christ. Comfort is only found through Him. And so sometimes the most comforting and loving thing you can do is to call someone out on their sin so that they walk more closely with the Lord. So, God is the source of all comfort, but notice what verse 4 says, who comforts us in all our affliction. So, just in case you missed it, God is the God of all comfort, and He provides that comfort for all affliction. Okay, those two words are key as we look at these passages. So, it's not just that God holds all comfort, but He doesn't dispense it. God gives you the comfort you need for any affliction that you face. So whatever your trial is, whatever suffering you're going through, God has the comfort that you need in order to sustain and to push through it. God gives you that comfort in any affliction. And just think again about the wonder of knowing a God who is like that, a God who has all ability to care and comfort His people and is willing to dispense it to His people in any affliction. What a marvelous God that we serve. What a wonder it is to be a part of his body. So he comforts us in all our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And so there we have a purpose statement. Why does God give you all of this comfort? Verse 4, so that you will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction as well. So you'll notice what's absent from this passage. What's absent is any self-reflection, any selfish motivation in this passage. When we go through suffering, pain, or trial, what are we prone to do? We're prone to turn inward, to think only about ourselves. But notice what Paul does. In your affliction, what are you supposed to do? Turn to God and find His comfort. And then as God comforts you, what are you supposed to do with that comfort? Not just hold it for yourself but dispense that to others so that they experience the comfort that God has given you. And so your trial and pain and affliction is never just about you. 
It's always about driving you to the Lord to find comfort in Him and then using that comfort to minister to others. Isn't that a wonderful picture? That's what it means to walk with the Lord. Now, the, the assumption here is that all of these people are living in community together. And so this is what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. The only way that you can have that comfort from other people is if you are a part of the body of Christ. And by a part of the body of Christ, I mean here physically with the church and a part of that life-giving body. That's an assumption that Paul makes here. Your, your purpose as you give that comfort to other people can only be accessed if you are a part of a physical body of Christ. That's the church. That's what we exist for. That's what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. God is going to ask you to go through hard things so that you will depend on Him more, so that then you can be an encouragement to your brothers and sisters around you. That's the picture that God gives of walking with Him and of the church. It's a wonderful picture. So God is the source of all comfort. Verse 5, just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. So the sufferings of Christ are the sufferings that He bore for our sin. And so if you think about what Christ bore on the cross, He bore the punishment for billions and billions, innumerable sin, right? That is the affliction that Christ bore on the cross. And so if we are united with Christ, if we are one with Him, then we too will experience affliction and suffering in this life. That's a natural, normal part of walking with the Lord. But notice what also is ours to behold. If, if we bear the affliction of Christ, then we also bear the comfort that only He can give. And so it is our union with Christ that, that gives us the affliction, but also provides the comfort. And your comfort can only be had through that life-giving union with Christ. And it is union with Him that communicates all the benefits of our salvation. We are unified with Christ, and that gives us the benefits of justification. We're unified with Christ, and that gives us the benefits of sanctification. And we are unified with Christ, which is our hope for eventual glorification. That union with Christ is the most important feature of your theology. So we are one with Him, and that's where our comfort comes from. Then verse 6 gives us the, the foundation of this comfort. What are we really talking about? When God said he's going to comfort you, what does that really mean? I mean, it would be really comforting if a million dollars just got dropped into my bank account this afternoon. Would anybody else be comforted by that? Maybe I'm the only one, right? So that would be really comforting. So is that the kind of comfort that God's going to provide for his people? That was a question. No, okay, good. No heretics out there. Verse 6, but if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same suffering. I want you to focus on that phrase, the patient enduring of the same suffering. So what is the comfort that God gives to his people? Sometimes it's the removal of the trial. Sometimes it is that amazing, miraculous salvation that only God could do, and He gets the glory for it. But notice what Paul says there. Most of the time, God's comfort looks like endurance. 
Most of the time, God's comfort looks like endurance. It is God's comfort that allows you to endure in the face of a trial. Something that is so strong and so difficult that there's no way you could endure this in your own strength. And the only reason you can endure is because God has comforted you. And so when we look for the comfort of God, what we look for is endurance. We look for courage. We look for strength. For God to strengthen us to endure through that trial. Sometimes God removes the trial and we praise him for that. But what we always pray for is that God would give me the endurance and the strength to push through what he's called me to do. And so, just quickly, we'll look at verses 8 through 11, and we'll deal with this more next week as well. But I'd like to just draw your attention to verse 9. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And so here we see the final conclusion that Paul is drawing from this whole passage. Remember, his point is to show the sufficiency of God for our call, for our comfort, and now for all of life. And the point is, God is sufficient for any and every trial that we face. He is sufficient for every aspect of our life. And notice the purpose of the trial. We have the sentence of death within ourselves. Why? so that we would not trust in ourselves. The human component of sin, the natural shape that sin takes in our lives is pride, the desire to depend on our own strength and to do things in our own power and ability. And God specifically brings trial and affliction into our life to show us that we are not able. We are not capable of taking care of ourselves. We must depend upon God. And so the reason we walk through trial is to create that sense of dependence upon God. And so as we conclude this morning, I want to leave you with that question. What are you doing in your life to create that need for dependence upon God? Perhaps you're walking through a trial this morning. Perhaps you're walking through a season of suffering that God has called you to. And I guarantee you that that season has been given to you so that you will learn dependence upon God. Where are you turning for comfort? Do you turn to idols, to family, to possessions for that comfort? Or are you finding comfort in the word of our God? That's my prayer for you this morning. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage. What a great start to this book. And we're so grateful um, for the truth that it contains. Father, I'm so grateful that the success of our ministry here is dependent not on numbers or, or on wealth or on influence, but your word tells us it's dependent on how faithful we are to your word. And so, Lord, would you protect us in these days? Help us to um, doggedly devote ourselves to your word and to not, not waver as we seek to confess it well. And so we thank you that you've given us your word and pray that you would help us to follow it faithfully. And Lord, in our own lives, as we walk through seasons of, of affliction and suffering, help us to turn to you for that comfort. And would that comfort show up in our lives as the patient endurance that you have called us to? Would you strengthen us to endure and to walk through whatever it is you've placed before us? And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.